Would you have your Bibles open once more to Titus chapter 1, please? And as you get that text in front of you, you might recall if you were with us last week, so we are looking at uh, going through all of Titus, this short little epistle, three chapters, and we're taking it uh, sort of half chapter at a time over six weeks. And last week we saw just in that introductory section, very compact section, how the hope of eternal life is absolutely central because it drives the kind of godly living that, Ty- that Paul is after in writing this letter to Titus. That the entire letter of Titus is really about, as you can see in, in the uh, sermon series title in the news sheet uh, today, grace training for godly living. And it's that hope of eternal life that drives in verse 2, where the hope of eternal life is central to what happens in stirring up faith for God's elect and knowledge of the truth. And that same life that appears in the middle of chapter 2, verse 12, which we'll come on to in more detail in a few weeks' time, where there in 2.12, really, the main that entire section about the grace of God appearing is that the grace of God appears to us, training us in order that we might live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In order to live, that we need the hope of eternal life breaking into our, our lives now to train us in how to live godly lives. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, we saw that phrase again. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs inheriting even now some of that life, although we look for its fullness yet to come. So the hope of eternal life is what we spent time thinking about last week. And now, this week, we come on to verses 5 to 16, and we see that this hope of eternal life is joined up in God's word with a structure and provision for healthy living together in the church. In fact, what we're going to see here this evening is that healthy churches need a healthy ministry. Healthy churches and healthy Christians in those churches need a healthy ministry. And this text has a lot to tell us, a lot to teach us about what a healthy ministry in a healthy church looks like. So grace training for godly living, the overarching thought here in Titus. And we see that kind of grace training for healthy spiritual life coming to the foreground this evening in our text. Maybe some of you go to the gym. I don't often make it myself. I uh, haven't for quite a long time, actually. But if you do, maybe you're engaged in kind of something like strength training or weight training. Or maybe you've done some cross training in, in the past. You know, running and then a bit of swimming and then a bit of hitting the weights. In order that, you can increase your fitness and your health, right? That's the whole point of that kind of training. Well, grace training in Titus is oriented towards godly, healthy, growing Christian living. And this evening we see that healthy churches need a healthy ministry. Where are we getting healthy from? We haven't seen healthy in the text we just read. Or or have we, actually? If you look down at the text and you see in verse Verse 9 of your text, if you're using the church Bibles, you might just see a little number 6 there in the middle of the verse. Do you see that? In sound doctrine, a little number 6. And then if you look down to the very bottom of the page, we're told that the, the term in Greek that means sound is also, it's literally healthy. So that's where we're getting healthy from. Sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, 
based on and rooted in the word of God, leads to healthy living. And we see that healthy living emerging later in verse 13 of our text. Even for these who are being rebuked sharply, the goal is that they, and by implication everyone that Titus is working with in these churches, is brought to soundness in the faith, or health, a healthy, godly faith. Healthy churches need a healthy ministry, and that healthy ministry is rooted in the hope of eternal life in the gospel. So we're going to look this evening at what this text holds out to us that helps us understand better what a healthy ministry looks like. The first thing that we're going to see is there is there's a kind of care that we need in the church if we are going to grow as healthy Christians together. We see that emerging in verse 5. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Paul and Titus at some point had been there on Crete, founding churches, preaching the gospel, and people believed and responded in faith. And in little cities along the coast of that island in the Mediterranean, the first groups of Christians began to gather. Now, we don't know exactly when this was. Acts chapter 20, verse 3, might be the place where we see a little gap in Paul's travels and ministry when he's in Greece, we're told. And, of course, Crete is a a Grecian island. Maybe it was then, on Paul's itinerary, when he and Titus and perhaps others went to Crete and founded these churches. But whatever the case, Paul has left Titus on this island of Crete And now he's writing to him and equipping him with what he needs to fortify those churches, to put them in order, uh, what we might call in some Presbyterian circles as particularizing those churches, actually setting up elders so that those churches can function with word and sacrament and discipline. The word preached, gathering for worship, celebrating the Lord's Supper and baptisms, and discipline as needed. Those churches needed to become full-fledged churches, and that's what Titus was being enjoined to do by Paul. Titus, one of Paul's precious co-workers, he calls him in verse 4, a true child, my genuine child. And we sense Paul's love for Titus at the beginning and the end of this letter. Titus was with Paul in his earliest days. We're told in Galatians, Paul Paul says, I, I had Titus with me in Jerusalem when I went up to Jerusalem to make myself known to those other uh, those other apostles there. And later, Titus appears in a, in a very real way on the pages of 2 Corinthians. He was one of Paul's trusted letter carriers and, and co-workers that Paul sent to that Corinthian church that had so many problems and issues to be sorted out. And Paul trusted Titus to do that work for him. Titus is Paul's beloved child, a genuine child in the common faith, and he's been left to set up healthy churches around this island of Crete. And why was this necessary? Well, it's not just necessary in the sense that everywhere the Christian gospel goes, there needs to be healthy churches. There was a really pressing need. And we see that need, especially from verse 10 onwards. You see that little word for at the beginning of verse 10. This is the explanation. This is the reason why Titus is being told to do what he's told to do in verses 5 to 9. For there are many who are insubordinate. Empty talkers and deceivers. It's not just that the churches need to be built up generally. It's that there are false teachers present 
in those communities who are teaching things that are detrimental to a healthy Christian life. They're rebellious, we're told. They're insubordinate. They're not happy to submit to the apostolic gospel that Paul proclaimed and that he has then passed on to Titus. And so there's a really pressing need from outside to protect those young Christians and those young churches there on Crete that Paul writes to Titus about in this text. Who are these false teachers? Well, verse 10 tells us that there are some who are especially of the circumcision party. Now, if you've read other letters of Paul, that might ring some bells for you. This is, this is Paul's way of speaking about those Jewish teachers, some of them who acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, but yet who continue to insist that Christians must follow many of the food laws, the circumcision as a mark of being a true believer, those things from the Old Testament ceremonial law, they insist that new covenant believers must also abide by these. And they teach that in these churches. They also teach, according to verse 14, Jewish myths. Now, we're not exactly sure what's entailed there. We know from other New Testament letters that some of these false teachers were really fascinated with things like the story of Enoch in the Old Testament and and really loved to know what happened after Enoch was was taken up by the Lord. And so they added to that, and, and Jewish myths uh, became perpetuated, and they were, there was a real unhealthy focus on things that God's Word did not directly address, but which sort of tantalized young believers and easily caught them and got them going off track. Paul says, this is dangerous for these churches. Have nothing to do with these these men. In fact, Titus, you have to appoint elders to protect the flock, to protect those churches. There may even have been, according to verse 15, as we, as we see, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. It may be that Paul is alluding here to the fact that these false teachers were prohibiting certain foods from being eaten. From, uh, as we know in other letters that Paul writes in this part, this period of his life to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, that some of these teachers were forbidding marriage as something good, saying, no, you have to be celibate. You've got to remain single if you're really devoted to God. They were ruling out engagement with good things, good gifts from God, and saying, if you want to grow as a Christian, you've, you've got to avoid these. It may have been that. These false teachers were present, and they were going into houses. Verse 11 tells us they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. We know that this was often the case, that Jewish teachers would be invited into someone's home who had enough space for people to gather and to be taught. But these teachers are teaching false doctrine, and they're doing so, Paul says, for shameful gain. This is one sign of a false teacher, isn't it? Not only in the first century, but also in the 21st century. Someone who is teaching and always then asking for a bit of bit of money. They're teaching for shameful gain. Well, we just need to pause here as we think about these of the circumcision party and these kinds of people that are being described in verses 10 to 16. And we need to think about what that might look like in our own day. And one one easy connection to make for us is that as those teachers were pointing people 
to things that they had to do or avoid doing if they wanted to truly be accepted by the Lord Jesus, that there's a kind of legalism there. A legalism that denies the gospel of grace. And unfortunately, we get a lot of that in our own day as well. And when we join that up with thinking about these itinerant teachers who are upsetting whole households, who are operating outside of what Paul wants to see as a healthy church structure, I think we've really got to consider where it is that many of us turn to get our teaching. Where do you turn to get your teaching? Do you, do you primarily go to the church, to the elders, as we're going to look at here in this text, and the minister? Or for, are you someone who turns to the internet? To preachers who stream their sermons on the internet? To reading books about the Christian life? Is that where you turn to primarily for your diet as you seek to grow? And be a healthy Christian. Now, of course, those are brilliant, brilliant things. And there's nothing wrong with getting through the week and enjoying extra sermons by listening online or podcasts or reading good Christian literature. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. However, however, the quality control on the doctrine that is taught through those media is not the same as what you have when you are a member of a church that is guarded as a healthy structure by elders and ministers. And it's just worth considering how it is that you are getting the bulk of your Christian food as you seek to grow healthy and be healthy and growing in the Christian life. Anything that turns you away from the gospel of free grace, that there is nothing, as we're going to see later in chapter 3 of Titus, absolutely nothing of our works involved in being redeemed from sin, in being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, in being made an heir of the hope of eternal life. Nothing that you can do. If anyone in any venue is teaching you differently, then that is the kind of false teaching that needs to be avoided, according to Titus chapter 1. It needs to be rebuked. And you need to turn away from that kind of false teaching. So can I just urge you this evening that if you are, if you are out of a desire, desire to grow in your faith, engaging in any of those kinds of things, books, podcasts, videos, whatever it is, are you also discussing the content of what you're learning with those in this in this body of believers, with the church? Are you ever, you know, as you hear something, you think, hmm, I wonder about that. That's, that's a little bit of a different take, a different angle on the truth of the gospel than I've heard before. Are you willing to come and bring that for conversation to an elder in the church, to Andy as your minister? Because you should be according to the structures that are set out here in Titus 1 and elsewhere in the New Testament. Let the church help you by protecting you from the kind of false doctrine that was evidently rampant and threatening young believers in Titus's day on Crete. So in 21st century London, it's not so different for us to what it was in 1st century Crete. There are external threats to our spiritual health in the form of false teaching. And sometimes we don't even know that unless we get some help from those who are more mature in the faith. 
But there are also internal threats, or what we might call ambient threats. Do you know what I mean by that? The kind of threat that's, that's in the air because it's in the culture. It's the air we breathe. And Titus 1 also points us to that kind of threat. As we come on to the end uh, here, uh, sorry, rather to the beginning of verse 12, one of the Cretans, Paul quotes Epimenides, a Cretan poet, and he uses the words of a Cretan to convict and expose the Cretan cultural tendencies. Do you see what he's doing here? He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul doesn't get hung up on the logic of about what he's about to do. He says, that's true. Now, can a Cretan say something about them all being liars and yet say something true. This is a what's called the Cretan paradox in philosophy. But that's not what Paul is focused on. Instead, he is subversively turning that saying around and aiming it right back at the Cretans in these churches themselves. And he says, that's true. The falsehood, the tendency towards evil, violence, laziness, gluttony, Rebelliousness, as we see at various points in this chapter, that is true about you in Cretan culture, Paul says, and that needs to be exposed. It's not just external threat of false teaching. There's an internal threat, and the same is true for us. Because the Cretans may have gone the way of ancient history, but London culture, Western culture, as we all are swimming in it here in 21st century London, is not so different Truth is an issue for us, just as it was for them. Cretans were always liars. Well, we are also people who struggle even to tell ourselves the truth. And yet we know, as Paul reminded Timothy, Titus rather, in the opening of that section last week, in verse 2, that we serve a God who never lies. God never lies, but we are, we are deceivers and we are even self-deceiving. The truth is not often in us. And so there's a threat to the gospel and to healthy Christian growth that comes not only from the outside, but also from the inside. And for these reasons, we need a ministry that cares for us, that protects us, that helps us to grow. Healthy churches need a healthy ministry that provides gospel protective care for the people. The second point is not simply that we, we don't simply just need care in a healthy ministry. We also need ministers. We need ministers and we need elders. That's what, that's what Paul tells Titus here. That if you want to have a healthy church, you've got to begin by having healthy ministers and elders who are given charge and oversight and care for those in the church. When, when you're, when you're ill, what do you do? Well, you might suffer in silence for a few days or weeks, if you're like me, until my wife kind of gives me the elbow to go across the road to the doctor's surgery. But then you go and see a doctor if you need help returning to health. Or what about if you want, if you do want to get serious about fitness? Maybe maybe a New Year's resolution some year that you make. You might go and engage a personal trainer or take advantage of a membership at a health club. You turn to people who help you to grow in your health. Well, God's provision for our growth in health as Christians is to give us a structure in the church with elders and ministers. Verse 5, Paul says, I left you there and now you need to appoint 
elders in every town. Plural, multiple elders in every town. A plurality of leadership, not just one man up the front, not just a one-man show that could easily become a dictatorship because of our sinful tendencies, but a group of men appointed to care for believers in each and every town. Now, we have to make one little point here just before we continue. You see in verse 5, Paul says, appoint elders. And then in verse 7, he says, for an overseer as God's steward. And he seems to be talking about the same thing. And yet, some in other Christian groups, such as those in the Church of England in this country, take that second term, the overseer term in verse 7, which in Greek is episkopos, and you can see what that what, what that does. Overseer is a good translation, but you could also translate it bishop. And that's what it becomes by the middle of the second century and on. There are bishops who are set over certain areas, and so there's a hierarchy of authority. And Andy talked about this from the book of Acts a few months ago, about different ways the church is organized. Is that what's going on here? Are there elders and ministers in the local church who are then accountable to a bishop who has greater authority? No, I don't think so. In fact, I don't think at all that's what's going on here. Because even though these are two different terms, you can see in the context, Paul is using them interchangeably. In fact, he, he just he just goes for a different term to, to switch it up, as it were. He says, appoint elders. And then he goes on to say, if anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife. And he, he almost he almost pauses there. It's a, it's a phrase. It's not a complete sentence to the end of verse 6, is it? And then he pauses, full stop. For an overseer, as God's steward, and then he resumes again, must be above reproach. And he emphasizes that. These are the same people. In fact, what the second term does for us is unpack and explain what an elder is supposed to do. An elder is supposed to be an overseer. And he goes on, a steward, a kind of shepherd who looks after the flock in the church. And it's not only here. If you turn back, if we had time, we'd go back to Acts chapter 20, where in verse 28, Paul, who is addressing the Ephesian elders, and we're told that at the beginning of chapter 20, addresses them with this same term and calls them overseers. It's the same group of people. It's the same group of people. Elders are overseers, not bishops. And they have a certain kind of oversight. But it's not the kind of oversight that a board has in corporate governance. Instead, it is a ministerial, a serving kind of authority that elders and ministers are given. There's a kind of command structure here. Do you see it right from the beginning? In verse 3, Paul says, I've been entrusted with this gospel to preach by the command of God our Savior. God our Savior commands Paul, gives him a task to do, and Paul is one under authority. And then Paul turns around and he commands Titus to appoint elders. Titus is under Paul's authority. Paul is an apostle. We no longer have apostles. But Titus then sets elders who have that same kind of authority, delegated authority from God to care for the people in the church, to shepherd them, to serve them. thats It's a ministerial authority. Minister, coming from the word to serve, rather than magister, or one who's a master and who claims authority by right. This is a ministerial authority. And it's an authority to care for the flock. To care for the flock. And elders... 
and ministers among those elders. In the Free Church of Scotland, you might know this or you might not, that we have on our Kirk session, as we sit together as office bearers, elders, with this kind of authority, there are those of us who are ordained as elders, sometimes called ruling elders, and then there is Andy, who is a minister or a teaching elder. He's the one set apart. It's his full-time task and privilege to minister to this church. That is the thing we want to free him up to do and spend all of his time on. Whereas those of us who serve as elders but are not ministers are also meant to shepherd, to build you up, to care for you, to challenge you when necessary. But we have full-time jobs elsewhere that we're engaged in. And so there's a minister who's worthy, we're told, in the other letters of Paul, of double honor. We pay Andy for what he does because we value that gospel work so much. But then he's joined and surrounded by other elders. And we all have the same authority and obligation to care for the people of this congregation. And this text, I have to say, is a sobering one to preach on as one who is an elder because it holds out for us a very high bar for the character that an elder or a minister must demonstrate, the godly character. The charge to care is clear, and later on we're going to see some of that relates particularly to teaching, But the character is what gets the most focus. Do you see that from verses 6 through 8? First of all, above reproach, repeated twice. Sometimes this is translated as blameless. And right there, I feel like I ought to just close my mouth and sit down. Because no one is blameless. We know that. And yet what, what Paul means here, thankfully, is not perfection. Because that would disqualify anyone. Anyone from the office of elder or minister. What he mean, what he does mean, however, is that the life and the character of an elder, one who would aspire to that office or to the ministry, must be, must be blameless in a very significant and public way. There should not be an openness to charges of hypocrisy or of sin that are easily brought against a man who is an elder or a minister. He's to be the husband of one wife. Does that mean an elder must be a married man? No, I don't think so, along with many others, including John Calvin. I think what this means instead is that an elder, a man who aspires to this office, must be faithful and chaste. So if he's married, he's a one-woman man. He's not an adulterer. He's not got wandering eyes. He's not living a double life. He's a one-woman man, loyal to his wife. But if he's not married, either as a young man or as a bachelor, he demonstrates purity and chastity in his life. That's what Paul's requiring here, a faithful and chaste man whose children are believers. This is another challenging requirement, isn't it? But just like with the blameless, I think what Paul is after here is that what what do you want? What does, what does God want For those who are given oversight of his church, he wants them to have demonstrated in their own families a godly care of holding out the gospel, even to their own children. So if that is a man who's married and has children, he has faithfully prayed with and for them. He's held out the gospel for them. And by God's grace, he has worked tirelessly to see them profess faith. 
But of course, that's not ultimately in his power. I think also we have to remember here that Titus is in a he is in a church planting missionary sort of setting, isn't he? This is a this is the gospel breaking in in the first generation. And as it did so, as we know in the, in the stories and acts, often it did so in a way in which the head of the household repented of his sins and believed and his whole household joined him. And I think that's the kind of thing that we have in view here is that in this first generation, these young churches, Paul is telling Titus, look for those kind of men, those men who have steered their entire household to profess faith in the Lord Jesus. They're, they're not subject to debauchery. That's not a term we throw around very often, is it, anymore? But that's ungodly living, whether that's to do with alcohol, as is picked up later in, in the remaining verses, not given to too much wine, not, not a drunkard, not engaged in sexual immorality, not insubordinate. Do you see? This isn't the only place insubordination comes. We heard it also in verse 10, didn't we? That kind of rebellious Anti-authoritarian spirit is not something that you want in an elder because an elder needs to be accountable and directed by the command of God and needs to be willing, as we're going to see in a moment, sometimes to say hard things that he doesn't want to say to people. But he needs to submit to God's will and to God's word. So just as you would look for someone who over their family or in the, uh, among those in their care, as an employer, or in relationships, demonstrates a godly life, care for those in his charge, pointing them to the Lord Jesus. That's the kind of thing you want to see in a man who would be an elder. And we need to pray. We need to pray that the Lord would raise up from among us more who would be qualified for this kind of office-bearing and shepherding work here at London City Presbyterian. We are blessed with a wonderful group of elders who are the first to admit that we are sinful, we are not blameless as we should be. And yet, the Lord has been at work in us, and we are privileged to care for you, to pray for you, to try to protect you from the kinds of false teaching we see in this passage. But we need help. We need more. The work here is growing. This is a growing, healthy church. And we need more men. Would you, would you pray to that end? That the Lord would provide more elders. Would raise up more elders in this church. And elder, it goes on, it gives us many things in verses 7 and 8, and we don't have time to look at each and every term. Either, verse 7, all of those vices are negative characteristics which should not characterize the life of an elder or minister, nor all of the positive ones in verse 8. But let me just draw your attention to the first one in each list. I don't think Paul and the Holy Spirit through him ever does anything by accident. And I think what's highlighted at the head of each of these lists is significant for us. What about verse 7? He must not be... What's the first thing? He must not be arrogant. Why? Why is that so crucial? Because to hold a delegated authority and to exercise authoritative care over others, there is always a temptation to confuse the authority you've been given with your own skills, with your own desire, perhaps, to lead people, and with our own natural inclination to think that we are better than we are. And unfortunately, in too many churches, either amongst ministers or elders, there is arrogance 
rather than humility. And that is often the downfall of a ministry and an entire church. Arrogance has no place in a minister, rather humility. And verse 8, look at the first term that headlines this positive list of virtues. Hospitality. Hospitality. I'm so grateful to, to Andy for, for modeling this well, as so many others in this congregation do. When we first came uh, three and a half years ago, we were simply blown away by the hospitality that is practiced as a general rule and culture in this congregation and continues to be. And that's a wonderful thing to praise God for. But it's particularly something that you want to see in someone who is called to the office of elder, someone who's willing to open up his home and his life and the life of his family to invite others in, in relationship. Hospitality. All of that is simply the character that God requires of an elder. And that's before you even get to what they're meant to do, really. It's, it's so important that God has been working in this person to mature them as a Christian before they are called to the high task and office of being an elder. So let's continue to pray that the Lord would bring us more elders. But remember, an elder in this description also includes a minister. And we are so grateful to have Andy. But as you heard from that first reading in Exodus chapter 18, when Moses was overwhelmed by the ministry that he was undertaking, what did his father-in-law Jethro say to him? He said, what you're doing is not good. You're trying to shoulder too much of this yourself. You need other men around you. And so there were elders appointed. And we've been talking and praying over many years about the need for a ministry assistant, an assistant minister in this congregation. And many of you will know that next week we have a candidate coming to us. Would you continue every day, please, this week to be in prayer that we would be discerning as to what the Lord's will is with regard to this candidate who will visit us next week. And would you have in the front of your minds and of your prayers these character qualities, both the vices to be avoided and the virtues to be displayed? And would you be asking that we would be able to have a sense together as a congregation, as a Kirk session, as we meet privately with Harrison, to discern what kind of godly man he is? Because this is what the Lord calls for in a minister. And this is the kind of minister that we need to come and help Andy with the work, to help the rest of us who are elders with the work here at LCPC. But look at verse 9. Verse 9. This is the kind of man God wants for an elder, and what must he do? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He's got to be a Bible man, a steadfast Bible man, the kind of man that, that you've heard that John Bunyan evidently was, that if you cut him, what, what, what came out? He bled Bible. He is a Bible man. That's the kind of man you want, who loves not just growing in knowledge of God's word, but desires to be in this book, hearing God's voice every day, and who knows this book increasingly, front to back and is able to apply it to his own life, the life of his family, and the life of the congregation. But not just a Bible man, a man who holds fast to the trustworthy word is taught. The terminology that Paul uses here goes beyond simply the scriptures. 
Because he says that in other places when he wants to talk about the scriptures, which for him is the Old Testament scriptures, although we do get a glimpse of, of the sense that his letters themselves are being viewed as scripture in the New Testament era. But it goes beyond all that when he says the trustworthy word is taught. This includes sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. And we see that as he goes on, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And so what you need is not just a Bible man absolutely rooted in the scriptures, but you want a man who knows the sound doctrine that flows from the scriptures, what the Westminster standards to which this church uh, 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 pays a lot of attention and to which we as elders, office bearers, take vows saying, these standards, though not scripture, subordinate to scripture, express exactly the system of doctrine taught in the Bible. You want a man, as an elder, as a minister, who knows his theology, and who knows good theology, who knows the creeds and confessions of the church down through the ages. Why do you want that? Because look what he has to do. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. John Calvin says, the minister, according to Titus 1.9, has to speak with two voices. A voice that feeds the sheep, that instructs the sheep, and a voice that drives away the wolves to protect the sheep. And you can see where he gets that in this text. That's what we need from a minister. And again, we've got to keep that in mind as we interview and get to know this candidate in the next week, as we pray. And as you pray for us as office bearers here in this church, as elders, that we would be able to be growing and consistent in our ability to instruct in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. There's so much we could say about what that looks like, uh, but I, I realize that our time is short. And so I just want to apply this to us. as we finish. We've, we've seen that a healthy church needs a healthy ministry because there's a need for care. There's a need for care. A healthy church needs healthy ministers and elders because they are the ones charged with providing the care that the church needs to grow healthy Christians by instructing in sound doctrine, by refuting and rebuking those who deny it. And so I want to apply this just as we finish to you, to us this evening. I'm mentioning a lot about Calvin tonight, and the reason I'm doing that is I've, I've been reading through, both in teaching this at college, Titus recently, and, and now in preparing for this sermon series, I've been reading through Calvin's sermons on Titus from 500 years ago, and they have been really challenging to me. And one of the things they've pointed me to are some records of how rebukes were handled by elders in the Genevan churches in the 16th century. And this is fascinating, because when we hear the word rebuke, or when we hear the word admonishment or warning, sometimes we get a little bit nervous. We see here very clearly that Titus Titus and these elders are meant to be rebuking, refuting, admonishing those who are teaching false doctrine. But by extension here, and as we go on through the letter and elsewhere in the New Testament, we know that that's also meant to be done to those in the church when necessary, whose lives do not display what we've seen in verse 2, a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. When your life as a member of this congregation 
And better, as a professing, communicant member on the rolls of this church, when your life does not display godliness, you need to be willing to be rebuked. That's, that's hard, isn't it? We, no one likes to hear that ever because of our, because of our own hearts, but especially in our day. Who are you to tell me what to do? And yet that's the charge, that's the delegated authority given to elders and ministers to rebuke when rebuke is necessary. So I want to ask you tonight, are you willing to be rebuked when necessary? If, if it would come to that, if either your doctrine is going off the rails or if your life is not demonstrating the godliness that it ought to do, are you willing as Andy comes to visit you, as the elders speak to you in conversation, to be rebuked. Well, in John Calvin's Geneva, this was, this was done, and it was difficult. So one, one fellow was called in, and he was rebuked for his excessive drinking. Another older man, who's a bachelor, was called in, and he was admonished because he let his servant girl sleep in the kitchen next to his bedroom, and there was a door joining the two. And you can see how unwise that would be. Now, it might not be excessive drinking, and I hope it's not living alone with a servant girl for anyone in this congregation, but what are the kinds of things that you might need to be rebuked for? Even as we just cast our eyes down those lists of vices and virtues, we're reminded Yes, these are. this is what a Christian elder in God's church must avoid and embrace, but it's also true for all Christians, isn't it? The husband of one wife. Are you pure and chaste and faithful? Not insubordinate. Are you rebellious in a way that you're throwing off the yoke of God's word and trying to live your life in the way that you want to live it? Here's a more difficult one. Are you part of this congregation? And maybe you have been for some time. And maybe you even consider yourself to be a Christian. And yet you are not submitting yourself to the membership of this church. And and there's no circumstance that explains why that's happening. Well, in this text, we are encouraged to submit to that structure which God has provided for our spiritual health and growth. And that's a structure in the church which means being a member so that you are submitting, not only professing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but submitting yourself to the care and the discipline of the elders that God sets over you. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe that is the challenge that you need to hear. Finally, I just want to leave you with this thought. What are the Cretan tendencies in our own culture? If the Cretans were liars and lazy gluttons and all the rest, what is it, if if that's the air they breathed and they couldn't even see it in themselves, and Paul says to Titus, you and the elders need to refute that. You need to expose that for them, rebuke them, and teach them what is godly. What is it for us? What's the air we breathe, the kind of Cretan air? Well, I wonder if it doesn't have to really do with that sense of insubordination or rebellion that lies in our hearts as we come to God's word. Because a rejection of authority is the air we breathe in our culture, isn't it? No one likes to submit to authority. And if we are, if we are breathing that air, if that's the way we've been brought up, if that's what we encounter in, in our schools, in our workplace, when we turn on the television, 
a rejection of authority and a determination to live our lives the way we want to do, we are not immune from that creeping into our own hearts and lives. And what that often looks like is a rejection of God's authoritative word in Scripture, guiding us in our beliefs and our practice. And this often this often really surfaces for us, doesn't it? In the way we think about our identity. We think that we can script our own identity. We can construct our own identity. And we can decide how it is that we like to live. And in something that resonates with this text, our own culture often does that in a sexually oriented way, doesn't it? That our sexuality is so deep and deeply rooted in who we are that we think we get to determine what we do as sexual creatures created by God. And we throw off the yoke of God's word and we go our own way. I think that's one of the tendencies, a Cretan kind of tendency in our own culture. And where does that lead us? It leads us to life of ungodliness and impurity if we, if we embrace that cultural view of identity and authority. And that goes directly against what Titus is all about. If Titus is all about grace training for godly living, and if Titus is so concerned as he is at the end of chapter 1, verse 16, that we not be unfit for any good work, or as he'll go on, that we are not unfruitful, chapter 3, verse 14, that instead we are doing good works, that we're bearing good fruit for the Lord because grace is working itself out in our lives, then we've got to be aware of our own sinful tendencies to throw off the yoke of God's authority and come and repent of that. So this evening, let me ask you, if you are here and you have still, first of all, not repented and turned to the Lord Jesus and embraced him by faith, and you are characterized, as you examine yourself, by that kind of insubordinate heart, and you are characterized by keeping God at arm's length and keeping God's church at arm's length, May I please hold out to you the wonderful offer of repentance and grace that Titus gives us. The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. The grace of God that's appeared to bring salvation for you because of Christ's dying for you on the cross and being raised to new life. That is available to you to embrace by faith this evening. But for most of us in the room, it's instead a need to repent... Repent of our own self-determination, rejection of authority, and to, to join ourselves more closely to God's design for healthy Christian living, which is located in the church, with godly elders set with delegated authority over it. Healthy churches need a healthy ministry. And we need to pray together that the Lord would continue to be faithful to provide us with all that we need by his grace in this church so that we could see the work of the gospel grow in our own lives and in this community. Let's pray.